We are live. All right. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Welcome everybody to the Safina Society Nothing But Facts live stream in which we are today talking about the affairs of the Ummah and the affairs of the Ummah today is going to be nothing of course other than the nation of Pakistan and the calamity that they're facing and yesterday I read a story about how this uh, calamity, the, the hospital, or it was like an area where people are, were giving birth, because they're not always hospitals, um, it could have been something else, uh, but somebody was giving birth in the building, and the, at the moment of the, the building collapsed, a lady gave birth, and they had, not even, they had just cut the cord between the mother and the baby, and the cord was still on the baby. And the baby just, everything washed away. And the baby was fell into the mud. But, as we know that Allah Ta'ala takes, He protects babies. He protects those who have no protector. And that baby was found. The lady literally picked him up out of the mud. Covered in mud. And was still alive. So, I, I, I saw, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But, that's definitely what we are devoting our attention to today. And I'm going to read you a couple articles that we have on this. Okay. It's essentially, uh, this flood is so bad, it's a hundred kilometer wide lake has formed, essentially. How insane is that? A hundred kilometer wide lake formed due to floods of the Indus River in Pakistan. And horrific sights have ensued um, I put on my Twitter page the place where people could donate money because we, we have the ability to make dua and we should never underestimate that and we have the ability to, to donate money and I put that on my Twitter page I also put the video of the baby not to get everyone away from the, the stream and to go watch that but I put the picture or the video of the mother picking up a baby right uh, uh Right out of the mud. So a satellite image shows like a terrifying reality that parts of this, who knows if it's ever going to recover, but a hundred kilometer wide has formed into, uh, has basically formed a lake. All right. All right. So a hundred kilometers is 62 miles. How, how did you know that? First of all. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the link someone said the link that I put didn't work. Well, shoot, we have to see. So this happened in the region of Sindh and Baluchistan. The rainfall has been five times more than the average, and due to this, villages and agricultural lands have been completely submerged. Now, I had never understood this until you realize that some. Nations and cities simply do not have an underground sewage system. It just doesn't rain enough for them to make it worthwhile for them to do that. Okay. Meteorologists believe that there is a possibility of heat, of heavy heat in the coming days. That's terrible mixed with water. Because warm, still water and heat, that's going to bring you disease. It's going to bring you different types of bugs, flies, gnats, and, and that's going to result in disease. That's one of the worst things about floods is when the water stays still after the flood. 
still water even when the Prophet arrived in Medina. One of his, his policies was to remove, to, to, to empty out all puddles. There should be no still water. And if you go to Africa, malaria, they always blame it on still water. Right? So uh, the, the, those puddles are the cause. Prime Minister Shahbaz Sharif visited the area and he took stock of the damage caused by the flood. This province uh, has seen the maximum number of deaths due to, to floods. Sharif said on Tuesday, this flood is the worst ever in the history of Pakistan. International help is needed to deal with it. Like, okay, so he didn't say anything useful. We all know that. You know, the president goes there and he says essentially nothing useful. Nothing that we don't know. Okay, let's go. There's, there's nothing really to say besides um, the calamities that are happening here. Are you familiar with the politics in Pakistan? Politics, somewhat. I'm uh, half more biased to Imran Khan. So. Your, pa- your family is uh, with Imran Khan? Yeah. So everyone else tells him it's a. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> so, so, what is the deal? Why are some people against him? Why are some people for him? For Imran Khan, they think like some of his ideals are like uh, very like rash or like very extreme. Mm. But I. I can see both points because he's kind of pushing, like he's a president, he's supposed to push his agenda, what he wants in the country. Yeah. But people don't like that. They, he thinks he's picking fights with the wrong countries. Or, mm. you know. No one's ever going to be happy in a democracy. Everyone has an opinion. Yeah. All right, let's read this about the stud. Uh, staggering. One third of the country was underwater as of this week. One third. Now, let me tell you something. Uh, flooding... One of the worst things about it is that it goes, the water goes down, unlike a fire which goes up. You, you'll always know where there's a fire. Now, fires, the, the damage is immediate, and it's like death right away. You can survive water and floods, but the problem is, going into the future, flooding when it gets into the foundation of homes, for example. Like, even though the, a fire, when a fire is over, it's over. It's short and quick damage. But when flooding occurs, that water goes down into the foundations of homes. It causes mold, fungus, and rots the wood and could cause severe damage in the future to a foundation. And that's the issue with water, right? Uh, that it, it just goes, it keeps going, and you'll never know where it is. So that's one of the long-lasting issues with water. So even if you just got flooded, like in a way that doesn't kill anybody, but you got flooded, the amount of damage that's long, the long-lasting damage, you, you, you won't know the cost of it, like just the financial cost. Forget human cost. If nobody died, but you just had severe flooding. Like when, yeah, when we got flooded and our, uh, my, my friend is a lawyer, his entire office was flooded. So with what did he basically lose his entire office? Only like three, four feet of water. That's it. Three, four feet of water that comes in and spends about six hours that's it. All the computers are shot. All the books are shot. The walls are just the sheetrock. You can't remove the mold. You can't like blow dry it. Yeah. It's just going to get moldy. It's all got to go. And that's one of the issues with, with flooding. So uh, a third of the country and more than 30 million people have been affected over the last few weeks. 
And the amount of deaths, 1,100. So when you think of 1,100, that's probably how many orphans will be the result of that. So how many of them are parents to how many kids? If half of them are parents to just one kid, and, and who in Pakistan has one kid? I think that most people in our Islamic countries have like minimum two kids, not, not less than two kids, right? Right, two, three kids. So you may end up with a thousand orphans. And half a million people, they're not dead, but they're displaced. And they're in these miserable, miserable uh, camps. And of course, these relief camps, they're not miserable like by design. It's just that uh, that's the nature of all these refugee camps or, or relief camps. Okay. Antonio Guterres of the, uh, the UN, Secretary General of the UN, he referred to the disaster as a monsoon on steroids. It requires urgent collective action. All right. Sherry, what's her name here, apparently is the climate minister of Pakistan, and she's giving speeches all over the world trying to get attention. The immediate cause of the catastrophic floods is rainfall. So if you're wondering what the cause of the flood is, it's not like a river that rose up, it's, it's rain. Okay. And it's record amounts of rain. Okay. Rain that is 780% above the average. So that means if you get you know, 10 inches of rain in a season, multiply that by 78. And that's like if, if 10 inches of rain is year 100% on, on a season of a monsoon, so multiply that and then divide that by feet, by 12, and you'll see how many feet they got. Said Abid uh, Soleri. He's the director of Pakistan Sustainable Development Policy Institute. Right. Melting glaciers. Okay, so Pakistan has glaciers, and they have uh, more glaciers than any other country. Has also, I don't know, I don't know, what, what mountain do they have? What is a mountain? It's not the, uh, we don't know our, our Pakistani geography. I mean, we're pretty, we're pretty bad at this. We need to know geography. We can't enjoy people's food and not know the geography. So there are glaciers apparently that melted and that contributed to the, uh, uh, I guess, that water evaporated in the air and then came down as rain. Apparently that's what, they're, what they mean by this. K2. Is, that, is there a name to that or is that like a code word or what? No, that's the name. Like K A Y T O? K and 2. Okay, so that's like. Uh, all right, it was only in 2010 when Pakistan last experienced such extensive floods, but officials have already suggested that damage from this year's calamity is way worse. That year, it was uh, Ban Ki Moon was the general secretary and he described them as the worst natural disaster he had personally ever seen okay anywhere in the world that was a 2010 flood and that affected 20 million people and led to 1500 deaths 20 million people that's a lot now the un said it is seeking 160 million dollars in emergency aid I don't know, I guess maybe that'll go a long way in Pakistan, but I know in America, $160 million, if a city was flooded, that's nothing. But maybe, I guess the currency exchange, that's going to go further in the land of Pakistan. 
A million homes have been damaged. 700,000 livestock were lost. And the U.S. announced that same day it would send $30 million in aid to Pakistan, which is basically nothing. Essentially, really, if, if you think about amounts of money when we're talking about the government level, that's like a couple of pennies. Okay. So Biblo is, uh, Bilbo Baggins is telling us, um, yeah, it's still the school's not in session yet, so the kids are still out. So Bilbo Baggins says that K2 is Karakaran Mountain the second highest mountain in the world after the Himalayas. So Karakaran, that's the K, and because it's the second highest mountain, two. two. All right, that's, so... I read uh, 7,000 glaciers. Glaciers. And if these glaciers are, are evaporating, then it's going to... Or it's melting, then the water's going to evaporate. When the water evaporates, it collects over time and psh, comes down in rain. So I guess that is an element of global warming. Yeah. That's the result of global warming. More uh, moisture in the air, more stuff melting. Okay. Humanitarian relief has started to arrive in the country, but efforts are hampered because of the infrastructural damage. Right? 2,000 miles of roads and 150 bridges have been affected. Karakaram is the name of the mountain, says Bilbo Baggins, with an M. Karakaram. Nauruz Jamadi is a social science lecturer at Luamas University in Balochistan. And he's been helping with the volunteer effort in Gendaka. This whole town has been converted into a dam with multiple sources of water pouring into the town, but no exit for the town. So it's killing people feet by feet, and it's choking them, he said. Okay. Uh, the floods trapped his own uncle, who was he, he, whom he was able to evacuate. We are helping so many people with little manpower, and we were in such a confused state, we don't know what to do. Now, it's easier said, said than done, but the way I look at it is that um, when a calamity like this happens, don't wait for help. Remember when the Hajj calamity was going on? Nobody knew what was going on at Hajj? My advice to people was, do not be naive and wait for some authority to come save the day. No authority is coming. They're as confused as you. Like some people uh, who have a, a constantly like follower mentality really don't realize that people who are in charge are human beings that are no different than you. They equally have no clue what's going on, are equally nervous, are equally worried about their own families. Right? There's no authority that's coming to help you in, in many cases. So when chaos breaks out, the fool, he sits there waiting for the authorities. Let's wait for the authority to do something. There is no authority. Okay, they are at, they're as hampered as you are. So you just got to uh, take care of yourself. And I think we're going to see more of that the more these these calamities occur. I heard Bangladesh is also about to flood. Um, I heard they're going to get flooding so badly that there may even like huge swaths of the country may cease to exist, period. They cannot be livable anymore. That's why when Elif and his dad, Brother Jalal, went this summer, they said, we're going to Bangladesh, they said, take your life jacket. Right? <laughs> okay. Experts say Pakistan has not done enough to prepare for floods. These experts are so close. Do you know how, what these countries are like? Right? <laughs> They don't even have electricity for 24 hours in a row. 
it always breaks up, right? These expert academics with their think tanks uh, giving these ridiculous assessments, you don't know, these countries, and I just spent, as a reminder, almost two weeks in a so-called developing nation. Developing nation is a polite word. Completely backwards, right? And they don't get electricity on a daily basis. Like, you'll never get a full day of electricity. There's always a power outage. If you ran an operation like this with the internet, you go bankrupt, right? You're going to go out of business because they never have internet straight, uh, uh, electricity straight. Nothing is in order. The electric company is not in order. The water company is not in order. The, the sewage company, you, you ha- the, the garbage. You walk piles of trash. Yeah, every once in a while, I did see the company or whatever, the, uh, the garbage, the township, scooping up trash with a shovel. They come with a <laughs> shovel. People found their own way, places to put trash, right? They, they, they dug out areas and they filled it with trash. You walk on the street, you just see a pile of trash, not even in a bin. So the most basic services of na- certain nations are not present. Go in Egypt. In Egypt, people park on the curb all the time. If you run a store, if you have an apartment building, if you have a house, and that bothers you, what do you do? You go and you buy some cement, and you hire some people, and you have no clue how to build a sidewalk. You build your own sidewalk high up, like two feet, so a car can't come in. And where do you do that? In front of your store. Not, your, not the neighbors, not the other neighbors. So you'll be walking in Egypt. The curb is like this. Like the sidewalk, one guy's got two feet, and then it's not even built right. You could fall. Who do you sue if you fall, right? Okay, you're not suing anybody. You're not getting any rights. But to show you the level of organization we're used to is not present in these countries. And I feel bad for them. I, like, I want to airlift you all out of here. If I had sadaqah, that's what I would do because it's depressing on a day, day in and day out basis to see this disorder and, and lack of... Uh, organization so you got one guy his story he's got a two-foot curb then it drops so what happens if someone's uh has a, a wheelchair or a stroller right for a baby a stroller for a baby or a wheelchair for an adult forget about it you're not getting uh there's no uh what do they call it like friendly what do they call it like when it's when it's uh, accessible wheelchair accessible no you're not getting any of this stuff you, you carry a ramp with you, right? So then uh, an expert like this says, Pakistan has not done enough to prepare for floods. Go live in one of these countries for two weeks. You've been lucky that these people are staying alive, right? Countries with similar risk profiles, such as Nepal and Vietnam, have invested in building infrastructure to absorb climate shocks, says Amira Sawas, director of programs and research at Stockholm International. Pe- yeah, Stockholm, where nothing goes on and you can be as peaceful as you want, right? There's never been a war there for like since the Norwegian times or whatever they're called, the Viking times, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, you got these people from Stockholm lecturing these developing countries and it just seems like, man, there's, there's just nothing in Pakistan, she says. So people were literally left to fend for themselves against really extreme weather. All right. 
All right. So someone, to me, in my eyes, is completely clueless as to the challenges that already exist to live on a day-to-day -day basis, let alone you go and lecture them from Stockholm, Sweden, okay, where, you know, the, you probably eat off the sidewalk from how organized and everything is. Yeah, because you don't have a population problem. You're able, no one wants to go live in those countries, those Scandinavian countries. Only the natives live there and a few immigrants. When you don't have a population issue, you can be as organized as you want. It's like when I go to someone's house and it's polished, right? You go into their garage, everything is perfectly neat. There's not a, a leaf. Then you're like, wow, how did these people get so clean? Well, because they have no kids. Or they have one kid who's like 15. That's why the house is so clean. Come to a house that has got three or four kids and they're all like young. You can't keep the house clean for two minutes. The cleaning lady comes in. At, she's out at 3 o'clock. By 5 o'clock, all her work is, is, is out the window because you have kids there causing problems so, or creating a mess. When you have huge populations, it's, almost re it's really difficult to actually organize the way that these other countries have been well, organized. Bring your mic close. Well, it's interesting because on the other hand... Um, these countries actually have been advising Pakistan to build dams for a very Advising long time. all you want. You don't even know what the reality is like down there. Right? Well, no, if it's like anyway, like Egypt or the Dominican Republic, right? I think it's worse. It is, yeah. Right? And then you're going to give them some kind of... Um, some academic advice. No, but the issue is uh, Pakistan is like, has a lot of glaciers. Yeah. Uh, and very big mountains. So it's like... A lot of experts knew the problem in Pakistan because of the, the high altitude mountains. So they knew there will come a time when the glaciers will melt. They melt, and water evaporates. Will come. It did, did, but they said it came from rain, not from the mountain. Well, yeah, that, that's also solar energy as well. Okay. So you mean you're saying that it evaporates up and it comes down as rain? Yeah, yeah because dams are solar energy. Okay. Like people misinterpret that. Um, I got you. But anyway, what the issue is, is the government. Yeah. So the people that are in power right now uh, have been in power for the past 30 years, mm -hmm. uh, and they haven't really done anything. Yeah. So that's the issue. Like, they've been advising them, but the government has been really stealing all their money, you know? Of and, course. It's not uh, even like... It's not a really corrupt government. It's not like they're 100% victims. Uh, all these governments, the guy's just looking out for himself. And they're incompetent, too. Yeah, really incompetent. It's incompetence. Like, I heard of one Pakistan, and not to hate on Pakistani... Uh, King or presidents or whatever they're called. No, no, but, no you can't definitely uh, hate on them. There is one one of these one of these clowns. He took money from a, a guy in Dubai, right? It was supposed to be for I don't know what uh, for the government, right? But he took it for himself. He had to. Then he then forged a document saying it was a gift. But when they looked in his court case, they realized that it was his daughter forged it for him. She used the default font on Microsoft Word to forge a document for 1980. That font had not been invented until 2008. <laughs> right? The font had not been in existence. Like, they're literally so incompetent. Like, incompetence. Like get away with that stuff. Yeah. You know, it's so. just total incompetence. Um, is it a punishment or a, uh, in general, all of these things is not a punishment nor anything except it's how you react. If you react by committing more sins, 
then it's a punishment. But would you say it's a punishment because the leaders that are in charge are in it's charge because of the incompetent people? It's a consequence. This is a consequence. But for the individual, it could be an mm. elevation of your rank if you respond well to it. Mm. And it could be a punishment if you respond badly to it mm. for the individual. Of course, for the nation, it's just a complete uh, consequence of the incompetence. It just uh, rubs me the wrong way when you get somebody from Scandinavia coming and lecturing people halfway across the world. You don't even know what it's like to live. And I got to be honest, I went, went through that phase too when I would go to Egypt or something like that and just be completely disgusted. Right? I'm still disgusted, but I don't really hurl blame at people anymore because they, they, they were born into this chaos. And I'm disgusted by it. I don't want to get used to this, but... I'm not going to hurl blame at people because uh, they were born into this. And if I was born into it, who knows what my, my mentality would be, right? The complete give up mentality. That's what happened. I had a cousin who's a doctor. I, uh, I said, we, he took me out for ice cream. I was like, where do I throw the, uh, the cup out and the spoon? He said, this is how we do it in Egypt. He took it and he threw it in the street. I'm like, right in the road like that? Aren't you, don't you like, take pride in your country and your street? Pride, he left. Balochistan is the worst affected and economically underdeveloped province. It has not been a priority for the Pakistani government during the floods. The government is not serious. They don't understand this idea of climate change. Hey, if you love Imran Khan, maybe it's good that he's not the president right now because all the blame will be hurled on the president, exactly. right? Exactly. It's perfect timing. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, the floods have hit Pakistan in the midst of a political and economic crisis. Earlier this year, Imran Khan was swapped out by Shabazz Sharif. Shahbaz. Right? King of Falcons or what? What does that mean? Shahbaz. King of Falcons. Is that what it is? Well, a Baz is well, a he's falcon definitely and a not. Shah. Oh, that, that's right. Yeah. A Shah he's is not, though. He's not a king. No. He's, he's not no. a gangster. No, not at all. After being removed, Imran Khan was removed from, through a parliamentary vote of no confidence in April. He has since upped his criticism of the government and uh, police have charged him this month under an anti-terror legislation after he lambasted them over the arrest and alleged torture of a close aide. So really, so you're going to cause tell, try to sell the world that Imran Khan um, is a terrorist. You're going to sell that to the world. <laughs> that... <laughs> So that means you actually are indicting your entire country because they elected him president. So they're all dumb and they didn't know that he's a... I mean, I can't say I don't support or not support him, but that accusation is pretty ridiculous. The IMF approved a $1.1 billion bailout package. Anytime you deal with the IMF, you're done. Right? Because you're going to be indebted to them forever. Okay? So they, wanted, they, they approved a $1.1 billion bailout. Who knows how much they're going to have to pay back. Michael Kugelman, Deputy Director of the South Asia Program at the Wilson Center, points out that Pakistan is already dealing with skyrocketing food prices that will likely increase because supplies will go down, harvest is wiped out, infrastructure is wiped out. To deliver food from one place to another is going to be extremely difficult. This economic crisis, food scarcity, it all sort of plays together and makes for a perfect storm. It sounds like he's happy. That will really complicate these recovery 
and reconstruction efforts. He's an academic saying, ooh, a lot of papers are going to be written from, be written after this. Right. All right. For her part, the Cipri's Sawas, which is that organization up in, uh, I think that's an organization up in uh, Stockholm, says that climate change in Pakistan's biggest security risk is Pakistan's biggest security risks, okay, and deserves the investment that recognizes it as such. The idea of security is a very old school, militarized notion of Pakistan versus India. But if we look at the situation, millions are in distress because of an environmental crisis, not a war with India. This is a massive human security issue, she says. You know, this, she's, uh, she, she's lecturing, okay, <laughs> getting on my nerves, to be honest. Okay, There needs to be a real step back and reflection. Go sit in the corner and reflect. She's basically it's like a child, telling a child, going forward and what's important and how budgets should be prioritized. I'm really worried. They'll forget again. So negative. <laughs> anyway, you know what? Half of my, half of my time I feel like uh, I'm in high school reading these articles and hating on the article, right? But it is pretty annoying when people uh, lecture in that way. But the floods have also called attention to the global inequity in who bears the brunt of the climate crisis. Pakistan has been responsible for 0.4% of the world's historic CO2 emissions. The onus is on the international community, particularly the industrialized world in the West and countries like China, to do more to help Pakistan. Such a naive notion. No one's paying out a dollar unless they could ensure they're getting something back. None of these governments are going around giving charity. But also Pakistan arguably could have done a better job to keep its own backyard in better order in terms of climate proofing and emissions reduction. Okay? The issue is sort of done. I don't know why they're having this whole article blaming what did you expect from a country that has not had a president, single president, finish his entire term. Yep. Isn't that a fact? Every that's the issue. Every president has either been removed by a vote of no confidence or a military coup. I think Bhutto was killed. She was shot, wasn't she? Yeah. Benazir Bhutto was shot, right? Assassinated. So assassinated. So she's you're either assassinated, you are either uh, kicked out by a vote of no pro- confidence or the military coup takes you down okay what is lily saying here she's saying someone said to me yesterday something that troubled me that he couldn't stand to live in a country where two men can marry and obtain a certificate okay that's a different topic than what we're talking about here maria hayat myra hayat assistant professor of the environment environmental and peace studies at notre dame okay let's see what she has to say out of illinois uh, she told the BBC about how Pakistanis may rightly be focused on holding the state accountable, but that citizens of the global north, just academic terminology, needed to reflect on how their countries have contributed to the climate crisis. Pakistanis know to hold the state accountable. But there are certain other questions that citizens of the global north need to be asking of their states, Hayat said. So, for example, what is the responsibility of the global north in the kind of devastation that we're seeing in Pakistan? How, how 
many years do you have to live to stop being naive? Taking your states to account, having the West go save the day, it's never going to happen. Part of that introspection for rich countries entails a serious conversation about who should pay for loss and damage. That's all these types of think tank people says. Let's have a conversation. Let's have a discussion. Why am I even reading this? I'm not reading this anymore. I, I can't stand, to be honest with you, uh, naive commentary from people where truth of the matter is that no one moves until it starts to hurt their po pocketbook. That's an actual reality of governments, especially. Okay, If it's either going to hurt their geopolitical uh, stance or it's going to hurt their pocketbook. And some of these academics coming and chalking as if they're talking to children, well, let's see who's going to, you know, why this happened and who's going to be responsible and we need to be doing more and it's just all naive talk. Sorry to say. Let's see what the economists have, which is not about that the absurd article from the Time magazine from Time magazine we just read, which is all about naivete. Uh, this one here is actually about how the rain was too high. Okay? Okay. The rate of rain this year has way surpassed any other year. So why is that? Even before this summer's rain begins, let's see if the economists can talk some sense. Pakistanis living along the country's rivers were witnessing the immense power of climate change. Meltwater from the Himalayas had swollen them by May. So glaciers melting and coming down. A month before the highest temperatures of the year were expected. Summers are getting hotter across the Indian subcontinent. And as a result of that, the monsoon rains that break the heat are unpredictable. Early or late, deficient or superabundant. So it's just erratic. Okay, and um, to continue reading this article, register now. No, thank you. You can keep your, your article. Let's see what some of the comments are saying. Some people are talking about the politics, PPP. Apparently, that's like a party. Um, correction, Benazir Bhutto was not the PM when she was assassinated. Yeah. Okay. PPP, she was not. Is, uh, PPP is her party. So when she got assassinated, that prompted the people to elect the PPP to power. Okay. Yeah, that's her party. Huck123 says, being an Indian Muslim in the UK, is it morally wrong for to have wished that the, come, the flood come to the enemy country of India, so the farce of the Modi government could be seen. Hamza Hussein says, I feel very nervous. There's probably a lot more Odia in Pakistan than there are here in America. And the Musiba comes down to Pakistan rather than us. Well, don't always forget that the calamities come down upon Muslims because what is the concern of Allah and His Messenger is the purification of sins. If you cannot purify your own sins by ibadah and deeds, we'll purify it for you. And that is for them, not against them. It comes on the Yom Al-Qiyamah, it's for them and not against them. Did not Allah Ta'ala mention, the, sorry, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Blessed Asham wal Yemen. And he refused to place his blessing upon and nudged 
What's Najd? It's the Eastern Arabia, which today includes the Emirates, it includes Riyadh, includes some of the richest cities in the world, right? Dubai of the Emirates, all of those countries are extremely well off. They have not had wars in their countries, famines, economic crisis. They have plenty of trade partners throughout the world. The U.S. president goes every year, makes uh, like every two years, the U.S. president has to, has to go to KSA and make sure relations are good to make sure that their oil trade is good. Trump went, Biden went, every single president has to go and, and, and kneel to make sure the oil prices are stay good. That's the only reason they go. How many times have you seen the Saudi king come to, to the U.S. to have to meet with the president? So Allah has given them natural resources to the fact that the greatest superpower has to go kneel there every two years. Okay? It's too bad there's no barakah. So we have it, but there's no barakah in it. There's no blessing in it. It's not helping us improve in our deen. Okay? In fact, it's making them worse. But the Prophet refused to bless them. They have all this worldliness. What does this tell you? This worldliness is not the concern of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for our ummah. Yet, he did bless Sham and Yemen, Syria and Yemen. And look at Syria. War torn completely. 50% of the Syrians are out of the country. And 50% of it's literally rubble. Go to Yemen, it's worse. Famine, war torn. It's war torn because Saudi and Iran are fighting like a proxy war in there. And it's having the, one of the worst famines on the earth right now. You wouldn't want to spend a day dealing with that. What's uh, the wisdom behind that? The wisdom is that Allah Ta'ala cares for the iman and the deen of the people. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Not for the worldly distractions of people. Right? So if, if, a, if an ummah that whom Allah loves, a group of people that Allah loves, and Allah may have loved their grandparents, how many Syrian and Yemeni people were there that were pious? And Allah Ta'ala is watching out for their grandkids who are maybe going one way or the other towards the dunya and maybe towards sins even so Allah forcibly brings them back through, through calamities I think Sheikh Mahal was talking about this yesterday yeah bring your mic uh, Sheikh Mahal was talking about this yesterday where he was saying like it, you can see where the people and like the if it's like a government that's like corrupt uh-huh. that like whatever punishment they get is for a reason because yeah. of how their people or how the government is moving yeah. in the world yeah. So it makes sense. Uh, and, and also remember that if there are righteous people, their offspring is the recipient of, are the recipient of their dua. So either the guidance will come to you, you will accept it and be good. If you don't accept it, yet there is some goodness in you, then Allah Ta'ala will bring you by force. And they will come on the day of judgment. And those who were wealthy will wish that they had those calamities. Prophet said, the blind will be brought on the day of judgment and the sighted will say, we wish we too were blind. SubhanAllah. Because of the, the vastness of their reward. So that's how we view things. But it should not be taken like we're welcoming this stuff. We still have to, if, you had a, if we had countries, we have to set up a, a, like a solid country and you would want to set up uh, your people to live in peace. It's not. This is not like an achievement, but this is the the, the good perspective to to spin on it, right? Or to take to look at it from that perspective. Okay, and by the way, that only applies if if the people react well to it. 
Right. So I, I was in uh, JFK Airport one time picking up somebody. This was uh, before COVID. And I saw an Arabic-looking woman lost, completely lost. But she looked wealthy, very wealthy. And I went up to her, and I said, uh, I talked to her in Arabic, I said, uh, see what I could do for her. She said, oh, first time in America. She, she's never been to America. She's meeting her son here. So we were waiting, right? And as time, I just chit-chatted with her. So it turns out, she's from a very well-off family in Damascus. And you know the people of Damascus, they're like, yeah, to, to put it mildly, they're the elite of the elite of the Arabs, the people of Damascus. And they have a reputation, a specific reputation for their nose being in the air. Even the righteous of them. Okay. She was an elite woman, right? Older lady. But you could tell she, had, she was wealthy and she was used to having her way in life. And she says to me, uh, I, she starts talking about her life story because we're just sitting there waiting. Well, 10 minutes past, 30 minutes. She tells me that her and her husband had moved to Saudi Arabia to work in some oil engineering and they were making a lot of money and then going to Damascus every summer and their sons had they had given their set up their sons in business she said one of her sons had migrated to America this one the other one chose to stay in Damascus and use the money that we made in Saudi and build up a business and he built up a real estate business that ended him up with two towers in Damascus, the entire towers. And he just collects rent like a king. Meanwhile, the other American one, he came to America to seek a, that this type of life, and he's like working like any of anyone else. Like maybe he was he was working well, like a doctor or something, but he was, you know, working. There's a big difference between a, a king who collects rent, right? And sits like a king on the couch, just collecting rent and buying and basically playing real-life Monopoly, essentially. That's what th- when you make it into real estate, that's what you're doing. You're playing real-life Monopoly. It's a game, though. And this guy's the other guy's working. So she tells me that when the war happened, in one day, bombing occurred in that neighborhood, both buildings completely torn to the ground. Everyone in the building ran, left. There's, there are no tenants. He went in one day, one day, to having zero income. SubhanAllah. So what does he do with his life? When took himself, and he's like in Denmark or some random country. He had to go flee until his family could, you know, use their money and their resources to put him together. And I think they were trying to put him, put him together piece him together and bring his family to America with their wealth that they had but it's almost as if subhanAllah you had a family here you have a family and she was a religious woman like wearing hijab wearing abaya and everything but here you have a family that's well off in the dunya and all of a sudden they have this epic calamity come to them from a spiritual perspective all I could do is look at it and say I think it may be Allah's looking out for you Right? He's making your whole family turn back to Allah because of this, and especially him. Because now his kids would have grown up on, in one trajectory of life, the kids of the mogul, right? the real estate mogul who's got towers and will probably have five by the end of his life, right? who will never think of money, 
will walk around with their heads up high and probably never be on their knees calling to Allah. Likely. Right? Because the Prophet said that the rich, he criticized them for the akhira, in the akhirah. They entered, when, when they entered Jannah, they entered 500 years later. Okay? And I looked upon paradise and I found the bulk of them were poor. Well, what does that mean about hellfire? Right? If we assume the opposite of that. Right? But now, his kids, they're foreigners. Foreigners get made fun of. Foreigners are out of place. He is poor. He's broke. Right? He might have business skills that he recovers. It'll take him 10 years to learn the language and recover and, and get going again. He might get going again. Allah is generous. But it's going to take a while. His kids are out of place. There's no, there's no reason to hold their head up. You're a refugee. It's like this, this, the, the, the worst status you could ever have on the earth is to be a refugee. No one wants to be a refugee. So that's, that's the way we could look at these calamities that it is for you, not against you. If you view it as the action of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is for me and is not against me. You have to view it like that. And yes, the real cause of it, of course, will be incompetence. They didn't build a dam, blah, blah, blah. They didn't build, they didn't take care of the, to think about the glaciers, all that. Syria, they had all these, they, they revolted. Did they think this through? Of course, you could, you could analyze all that you want, but to analyze yourself you got to look at things that what brings you down to your knees closer to Allah is for you and never against you. SubhanAllah. Someone asked me once, what if it's my own er error? I said, even your own error. Because Sayyidina Yunus salam, he fulfills this role amongst the prophets as an example for us. Namely that Sayyidina Yunus salam, was not swallowed by a whale just as a pure victim. He had went against the divine mandate. When you are sent to give da'wah to, to a nation, to a city, a prophet does not leave that area until he's commanded to leave the area. He keeps giving the da'wah. Well, Sayyidina Yunus was so... It's almost there are some things that are not disobedience, but it's out of piety. Just like Sayyidina Ali, when he was told by the Quraysh, he wrote a contract and he said, Muhammad Rasulullah... Quraysh said, we don't believe he's Rasulullah. If we believe he's Rasulullah, we, we wouldn't be fighting him. Put Muhammad ibn Abdullah. That's what we know him as. Sayyidina Ali looked at the Prophet. The Prophet said, they're correct. Wipe it out and put ibn Abdullah. Sayyidina Ali said, I'm not wiping it out. That's a disobedience of piety. It's not an actual act of disobedience. He's saying, I will not wipe out the word Rasulullah. So then the Prophet said, point it to me. And he pointed at it, and then he, the Prophet himself wiped it away. Right? So, there is some kind of disobedience that's it's rooted in piety. So Sayyidina Yunus was so disgusted by paganism, he can't stand these people, and he, he left. And that's where he was swallowed by the whale. Right? But it was for him and not against him. Because, so when, when you get swallowed, when you do something wrong, it's nonetheless still a chance that it could be for you and not against you. The, I mean the, the, the punishment or the consequence. Not the act, of course, itself. But the consequence may be for you and not against you. How many people did something wrong? They went to jail, like Malcolm X. Jail was the best thing that happened to him. It was for him and not against him, even though he deserved it or he did the crime that caused him to be in jail, right? So when people ask, well, it really was my fault, that doesn't mean that it cannot be for you and not against you. It could still be something you benefit from.
All right, satellite images, says The Guardian here, show that the extent of the devastation caused by the flooding in Pakistan. The images from Planet Labs and Maxar show swaths of green fields, villages, and buildings before the monsoon rain and flooding began lashing the country in June, and then afterwards, completely flooded. Okay. Uh, And basically... It's just uh, wiped out all the animals, too. All right. More than 33 million people, or one out of every seven Pakistanis, has been affected somehow by the flooding. I don't know if you could see this image here, but I'll show you guys at least that this is uh, the image on the right here is what their city used to look like from the aerial shot and you could see this the picture on the left it's like all beige that's where there's no more greenery it's just mud it's just flooding okay subhanallah so there's going to be a serious food shortage there is a serious uh transport shortage and so i think that allah adam but the this is i hate to be negative but the way I see the world going in the future is more and more of these uh, as a result of our human excess plus incompetence plus just too many people to, to be able to manage, right? That eventually people will sort of like lose track and, and just accept the fact that we're never recovering in these things. Like, there's no normal anymore. It's just from one calamity to the next. Uh, that's a very negative view, but it is the view that I think that is most likely to be the case. You know, when, when a third world country, when I was in one of these countries, I saw the, a pole, and that pole must have had no less than 50 wires connected to it. 50 electric wires. And I thought to myself, how are they tolerating this? It's like so ugly. And there's wires everywhere, and it's probably really dangerous, because some of them are cut who knows where these wires are coming from? Now, as I thought about it, I thought about it and realized that no country descends into this except very slowly. Because we're all human beings. No one will tolerate this. Like, no one will tolerate this degree of ugliness. So you got 50 wires on the thing, hanging all over the place. You have garbage heaps all over the place. Curbs that are going up and down all over the place. And... It realized that the only way that this happens is very slowly. Like very so slowly that you just sort of like, okay, the garbage, it doesn't come every week anymore. It comes every other week. It comes every two weeks. This has to happen over a long period of time that you just get acclimated to that. Then something else happens. Very slowly over time, this stuff happens. So I get this feeling, and it's, it's a sort of a negative assessment, but very slowly over time, the number of calamities in the world just becomes so much that you realize we're never going back to normal. Right? There is no, that is the norm. Just like for, for those cities that are run down like that, it just, you, they realize at some point we're never going to be crisp anymore. Crispness does not exist for us anymore. Like the idea of uh, the electricity companies doing their job the water supplies doing their job 
the garbage collection is doing their job. The street is paved. The sidewalk is like they've lost. That is a, a uh, an aspiration that has long been dead. All right. So, all right. Let's take any comments or questions. What do you got to say, man? Go ahead. Uh, the story you narrated it actually reminded me of when uh, now you mentioned uh, a calamity can be actually a guidance. A calamity, yeah, for can sure. Be a guidance. Yeah. For so sure. uh, when I was in Pakistan in 2005, and there was a big earthquake. Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting story with one of my teachers in elementary school. There was an earthquake, and the teacher used to come into the school without a hijab on. Uh, and long hair, she had mm-hmm. like long hair, and she would straighten it, and yeah. do a lot of makeup, and I remember a lot of uh, the the guys, I, I'm sorry to say this, but they had a crush on the, the teacher, so when the earthquake happened, she actually came in after the earthquake, about a month after everything was settled, she used to wear a full-on hijab after the earthquake, like, you know, she realized something that she faced death. People turn back, that's the thing, people turn, they, they, they turn their lives around. That's this is what Allah cares for us, for our for our akhirah more so than our dunya, and that's why we should expect. Uh, it's not a surprise when lands like India, Israel, China, they're very successful in life, right? In this hayat dunya, and they're getting all sorts of blessings. If you were to switch your minds to this for every like calamity in your life or calamities around you, yeah. then nothing would. No, there is no calamity you. anymore. Yeah, it, was, it wouldn't be anything yeah. bad for you. Let me tell you something at a spiritual level. When people think about that for a long period of time, let me tell you that now what, when they, they realize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's everything that is, is bad is actually for us spiritually. And everything that is good may or may also could be good for us spiritually because we could do good deeds with it. So let me tell you that one of shaitan's tricks for people who think like this is to tell people to have patience. Because you might think, well, isn't patience a good thing, right? But after a certain period of time, when you've realized, when you've come to believe fully, and you've done this over and over and over for years to the fact that, to the point that you never view anything as a true negative anymore. There's no such thing as a true negative except your own sins. My own sins is the only true negative. Everything that happens to me is for my own benefit. I just may not see the benefit now. So shaitan's trick to these people is to say, have patience. Why? Because patience is bitter. And shaitan wants you to have a negative view of Allah. Right? So that, oh, with Allah we have to be patient. Patience is a bitter thing. It's heavy. As if Allah is testing me, He's throwing these calamities on me, and it's, ne- it's a negative view. Patience is to be told to the person who is tempted to commit sins as a result of uh, prohibitions that he can't uh, uh, control himself as, calamities, and he's about to do something wrong because of a calamity, like for example, you lose a child and you're about to say something really bad, then you're told to be patient. Those are the people who need to be told to be patient. Once someone comes to realization that everything is for me, even though it's difficult, it's for me. It is a, one of the tricks of shaitan to the awliya and the salihin is I be patient, right? Because he wants to bring you down from the level of gratitude and recognition of Allah's wisdom. Because if you view everything as the action of Allah Ta'ala, you should be happy at everything. No matter how painful it is, but it is the action of my Lord for my own benefit. 
So for, shaitan wants to bring you down a level and say, be patient, bear with Allah's uh, commands, as if you're disgusted with Allah, you hate Allah's commands or his des- uh, what he's destined for you or his will. So that's why among the speech of the Arifin, they actually recognize that that could be a trick of shaitan. Right? Now you imagine you come to somebody who's going to dhikr. People go to dhikr sessions because they want to. They enjoy it. Right? It's the most simplest, easiest act of ibadah to do. And the sound's beautiful and it feels great. And then someone comes up to you and says, you're going to dhikr, okay, be patient. It's like, that, that advice is out of place. I'm completely happy about this, right? You, a man goes to uh, his wife, have dinner with his wife and spend the evening with his wife. Then someone says, you know, be patient with the wife. It's like, no, we want to do this, right? <laughs> this, is, this is out of place, okay? So you have to be mindful of shaitan's ad- good advice that's out of place messes everything up for you. That's his attempt. And Imam al-Haddad calls these kalimatu haq urida bihi baltan. A word of truth for which actually falsehood is intended. You're actually intending falsehood. You're intending to derail somebody's state with Allah by telling them be patient with Allah. As if Allah's bringing some hardship. No, we're past that. We know that Allah doesn't bring hardships. Right? Yes, it may be painful temporarily. Everything is painful temporarily. Right? Even a man in intimacy, a man who's, uh, not to say this like there may be some kids watching, but if a man and wife are intimate, they're tired afterwards. So even that has some difficulty, right? There's effort. Uh, You want to have a baby, isn't that the best thing to have a healthy baby? Look how painful it is, right, for the woman. Okay, it's painful. So there's always pain connected. Pain has nothing to do with the issue, right? There's always pain connected. If you're in the dunya, even the good thing has pain. As I said yesterday, every blessing has a, 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 a rough underbelly. You want to eat steak, right? You better eat a lot of greens because you're going to be in pain in your stomach afterwards, right? You want to enjoy uh, chocolate cake? You better exercise because it's not going to show up nicely on your body after that, right? Everything good in this life must come through and be connected to some degree of pain. So pain is not the issue. It's the wisdom is the issue. Right? And that's the big difference between the suffering of a believer and the suffering of a kafir. The kafir's suffering is the meaninglessness of it all. It's like I'm lost. SubhanAllah, as you, yeah, you guys are all pretty young, but as you start growing, you realize, man, years keep passing. SubhanAllah, the, the things you did in life. This kid was an infant, now he's in high school. Right? I've been uh, doing this, uh, driving in this street for like 20 years. It's like a big deal. Like It's like, for you, for, for, for you guys, five years may be a big deal. Wow, I did this for four years. Did college, four years. Right? But imagine you've been in the same place for 40 years. You start thinking, like, well, years are passing. But what holds you down from any sense of, like, loss or, or grief, sadness or anything is the idea of the consistency of it all. Like, all this is going to come back to me on the Day of Judgment. It all does have a meaning. It's not meaningless. It all has a deep, profound meaning that will, I'll carry it for an eternity. Those good deeds will, will, can earn you a reward by Allah's mercy for an eternity. So you don't feel like anything's lost. Right? There's nothing lost. Everything is a seed that's being planted for the future. Sometimes these, these like, Durus or Sheikh Murad get really spiritual. Yeah. Every, every couple of weeks we get to like a really spiritual point. Yeah. I remember like a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how everything... Everything that exists is a manifestation of the attributes of Allah. 
mm-hmm. like spiritual point. And like um, thinking about this, like when bad things happen to us, it's basically like a stimulus. Like you have to remember that Allah is there at yeah. that point. And like the worst thing that we could be in in our entire life is being heedless yeah. in a buffalo, right? Like sometimes I even think, you know, we pray Allah doesn't test us by this. But like it would be better to have like a life that's like more of like a roller coaster of sadness and happiness, mm-hmm. even if it's bad sometimes, than just this plain robotic, yeah. monotonous life. Yeah, that would that's like just heedless, and and there's no like stimulus to remember Allah and to have that connection. The the you know the cure if someone's life is like this, and there are, and and how could someone's life be like that? If you have two parents who are like this, they're gonna create a world that's like this, right? All the bills are paid all the time. There's no risky financial uh, investments made that could cause a roller coaster of ups or downs. Everything is just uh, stable. And a kid grows up in absolute utter stability to the point that that becomes his test. Because he's going to go crazy. Like There's like n- no action here at all. And there's neither hardship nor excitement. But the medicine of that is to do good deeds. If Allah has given you stability, go do good deeds. Go study. Go teach. Go do relief work. Like you've got to use your time and use that stability to go do something good. That, that's why Allah created some people to have absolute utter stability. So instead of the, the issue coming to you, you've got to create this. You've got to go out there and do something good. That's the medicine for people who live stably. If Allah gives people uh, ni'mah in life, their shukr is to use it for others. So you, you get to keep a sliver for yourself, right? But you better use it for others too. Some people, whether they're rich, whether they're whatever uh, ni'mah that, that Allah gave them, you keep a, a nice slice for yourself, right? That's permissible. But use the rest for others, and that way it will never be against you. It will be for you and not against you. Okay. Um, let's now go to the comments and questions. We could do this for 20 minutes before we do our du'a. We got Menzi 20s here, Waste 126, AAG, Nat Vibes, a lot of other people. Lucky Acceptance says Nat Vibes says uh, acceptance much more than patience, maybe. Accept. It's not only just accept, be happy with it. Any action of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, that, is uh, the action that is out of your control. And you react to it. In two ways. Number one, the Sharia will tell you to react. Right? The Sharia commands you how to react. If an intruder comes into the building right now, we don't say, we don't say, okay, come and do what you wish because it's from Allah. You don't say that, right? You fight him back. So Sharia requires you to fight him back to the death. Okay? Sharia requires you to protect your property. You don't just give away your property. Allah says, don't destroy yourself. You fight back. But internally, the whole event as a whole is from Allah. So I may be in pain. I may be stressed out. I may be crying. Right? But deep inside myself, my aqidah is that this entire thing has happened from Allah. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So deep inside, I know, maybe not now because I'm too, I'm too in this right now. I can't see the wisdom now. Once the dust settles, I'll start seeing the wisdom. Right. And the closer that someone is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to Allah, I mean, the quicker they see the wisdom. 
Lucky one, two, three. Assalamu alaikum from Turkey. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Tahir Omar, did Iblis see Jannah? Iblis was in the heavens, we know that for sure. Was it Jannah the Jannah of Paradise? It was one of the heavens. Uh, Dino says, you mentioned that patience is sometimes a trap. Yes, it could be a downgrade from your ridha of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As we said, someone invites you to a nice five-star uh, dinner, right? It says, be patient. It's out of place here. I'm accepting this. I'm happy about this, right? So, is that why Sayyidina Ayyub did not make dua to be cured for a long time? It is. It is. He has a higher maqam. The maqam there is maqam ad dua but he had a higher maqam. The maqam of accepting and seeing the wisdom in all of Allah's decree. So let it come and don't push it back. That was his state at that time. Ismail, what has confused you so much? It's the, the relationship between Qadr Allah and free will. Qadr and free will? What, we have no business with Qadr and free will. Free will, that's your action. Right now, what are you going to do? That's your free will. Act. Say, take action. When something happens outside of your control, then we say that's Qadr of Allah. A rock comes flying through the window. Qadr of Allah. That does not mean we're not going to go downstairs, find the person who did it, and make them pay for the window. Right? We're still going to do that stuff because Sharia requires us. But internally, we, we're not going to enter into a, uh, a dark state because we know that it's from Allah. Qadr, we have no business to yeah, try to understand yeah. no. it. Qadr is really meant after the fact for you to say it was Qadr of Allah. There's nothing anyone could have done to change it. So that there's no regret here. Right, what are you going to say something? Yeah, and like, sometimes like back to the just super basics of Islam, Islam means submission. Yeah. Like not only you're submitting your time and your body and all these things, but you're pursuit of every single knowledge you have to submit it eventually yeah. to, to Allah knows everything Qadr is like the biggest test of submission. Mm -hmm. totally submit to that. So why are we like we have this thing that we gotta understand it yeah. Allah has given you something you can't understand Khalas alright um, and there's no contradiction in it at all his knowledge has nothing to do with your will if you had no will right you have no, res no responsibility. You cannot be put in heaven or hell. Right? Okay, let's see what else we have here. I have a question. Yeah. So, so that comment, those comments, this is from the context of we already believe in it and we're explaining it to someone who believes in it. Correct. But what's the most proper way? I've heard many different ways, but what's the most proper way to explain it to somebody who's asking, who has no exposure to Islam at all? What's the relationship between everything happening on purpose mm -hmm. and us perceiving that we can make decisions? To we say about it, it is both in that we are making decisions, the choices are predetermined for us. So whichever way we go, it is something Allah has determined. It's as if there are so I, I could put this phone up or down or in my pocket or on the wherever but it's a limited number of things I could do with this phone I can't throw it to Illinois for example I could throw it to a limit 
right now. All of those options are already in Allah's knowledge. And if I throw it, there's like a destiny that's there. If I keep it, there's a destiny that's there. Whichever I choose is one of Allah's destinies. I'm only choosing one of Allah's destinies. So is it destiny or is it choice? It's both. I am choosing one of the destinies. No, and the scholar, I remember that taught this, he said, notice, you can't disobey Allah yesterday. You're limited. I can only disobey Allah now. Can you disobey Allah tomorrow? Right now, can you disobey Him in, in March 2023? Wait, right? You can't. You can only disobey Him now. Can you obey Him or disobey Him on Mars? Or only here? So He has already closed the, the, the door. There are certain, there's a limit of what I can do. Whichever one I choose is one of his wills, right? So that's why it is, I'm choosing, that's why I'm responsible, and it is Allah's destiny. So every single possible choice that I make already has a destiny written for it. And that's why the Prophet said, every one of you, will, you have a maqam in paradise that is yours if you made all of the right choices. And there's a maqam in hellfire, or there's a place in hellfire, because maqam is usually meant for a good thing. There's a place in hellfire for you if you had made all the wrong choices. Right. And probably we'll get something in between. Right? What is a maqam? A maqam is like a position. position right. Yeah. So there's a position. Now what happens for all everyone has both. So if five people went to heaven and five people went to hell, what happens? Those who went to the hellfire, there's empty seats in the hellfire. They get those punishments. So the punishment that you would have gotten, someone else is going to get it. And the paradise that they would have gotten is empty. All those palaces and all those servants and all those other things that are there, they're vacant. They have no owner. So Allah distributes them to the rest of the people. right? Which is one of the proofs that it is written in Allah's knowledge. If I did this, then this is going to happen. If I do that, then that's going to happen. All of it is already in divine knowledge. Right, so that's how we, we, we can very easily wrap our heads around the idea that it is our choice and it is predestined because the destiny is written in many different ways. So this goes to show that people that think like, like we were talking about this yesterday in class where it was, like some people think they're, they're bound for heaven, like that's what they truly believe and some people think they're bound for hell. Yeah. But like that just, you said that was cool. That's yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's yes. But this shows that like there's a spot for both. Like yeah. you could go to either. Like it doesn't like you can't like this would prove that point where yeah. you can't just say, Oh, I'm going to go to heaven. But mm -hmm. there's seats in hell for you too. There is a seat in hell. So for you. it yeah. shows and, and also someone who believes they're going to heaven straight away, that's also uh Al Amnu min Makrillah, which is the opposite of Al Yas min Rahmatullah. Both of them are kabair. Both of them. Uh, uh, what can we recite apart from donating charity for the people for Pakistan? Uh, Yasin, recite Yasin in dua for them because Yasin eases affairs. Prophet said Yasin eases affairs. Did you make the intention towards? Yeah, you make the intention of this recitation that Allah accept our dua to make affairs easy for them. Prayer with your eyes shut, makru. You can only shut your eyes if there's something forbidden for you to look at because that was the salah of the Jews and the Christians. I have a on this. Yeah. 
So, uh, some, I forget, some brother told me that what if, like, closing your eyes brings you closer in the Salah? Is no, like no we, we, we would tell you that your conclusion is wrong. Following the Prophet is what will bring you closer. Okay. So, uh, you can only shut your eyes if there is something that... Now, first of all, if you shut your eyes accidentally, mm-hmm. and someone was focusing so much on something, he actually shut his eyes accidentally. There's no harm and no foul on accidental... Let's say someone was reciting so well and your mind actually drifted away to the point that you shut your eyes. That's forgiven. But to intentionally do it, we would say following the example of the Prophet and contradicting your ego is better for you. If you did shut your eyes, your salah would be valid, but you would be doing something discouraged. And Allah is not worshipped by doing actions that are discouraged. And outside the salah, you could do what you want though. You see how Allah has, there, there are rules in our religion, but there's also flexibility. Outside of salah, you can, uh, you can shut your eyes in dhikr all you want. Okay? They may forget something too if they shut their eyes. They might not notice it. You might miss the like the jama'ah might be in ruku and you're in sujood because you didn't focus, you didn't hear it or something. This applies to nawafil too? Yeah. Yeah, nawafil too. Are humans fundamentally superior to angels? Humans are in one of two states. They could three states. They could be superior to angels. They could be worse than animals. And they could be somewhere in between. Right? Because when a human being gets demonic, he's worse than an animal. When a human being becomes angelic, means he obeys Allah and he remembers him much, he's better than an angel because he had to overcome more to get there. What dhikr should you do if you're having trouble with your anger? You should do istighfar and salah on the Messenger, peace be upon him. Mainly salah on the Prophet, peace be upon him. It cools a person down. If you give sadaqah for someone else's benefit, do you benefit from it? Yes, but that person should be dead. You can only give sadaqah on behalf of the dead. Muslim. Yeah. Can uh, like the Muslim gens, can Muslim gens become better than humans? Mm-hmm. Can. Muslim jinn? Yeah, can yeah. they become better than humans? Of course. Gens? Yeah. Like if a if a Muslim jinn is pious and the human is not, he's better than him. What else we got? Corey says, how do you recommend dealing with tablighi jama'ah? They intrude on the masjid. Uh, every community's got a, their own way to deal with uh, the uh, their guests and their people who require. But by the way, no, the, the management of a masjid has a lot of latitude to do what they feel is right in the mosque. If they want to say, no, one, you're not doing etikaf here, they're allowed to do that. You're not speaking here, you are, they're allowed to do that. Yeah. Or in our masjid? Oh, yeah. Uh, Qari, Nasir, myself, Sami, we have the latitude to do that. And we come to a certain basic agreement on what we want in the masjid, what we don't want. And many people think it's the house of Allah, like it's public space, like a forest. It's not. Right? The imam is a sharia position. 
It's a position in Islamic law, the full-time imam. And that is in the position of the administration of the mosque. He has the right to do what he feels is the most beneficial. So he could prohibit anyone he wants from giving a talk, right? Some people, wallahi, they come up to us as if it's, it is a human right to give a talk. So say, can I give a talk? Right? No, you cannot give a talk. Why? Just because you don't like my opinion? Yes, exactly why. Right? That is exactly why. Right? Well, the ummah should hear all opinions. Then go open a mosque. Right? Because in this message, they're going to hear a set number of opinions where it's predictable and they could bring their kids here and they know exactly what they're going to hear. There's a wisdom behind that. Not every day I did a different message. It makes no sense. Right? No one benefits from that. Every day, one time this flavor and one time this flavor, and one time this type of, uh, of view, and another time that view. This is not a university of, for youth to just go and hear different opinions because they have no opinion of their own yet. And they're swimming around the lake of opinions. No one benefits from that. Do that. If you want to discover, go discover on your own. We're not going to bring you a, a variety menu here. We are bringing you what we hold to be al-haq. Okay? You can bring your kids here. You know exactly what they're going to be told. Right? And that's the point. So that the family could come in and they, it is like predictable. I know what I'm going to hear in this masjid. I don't like it. I'll go to another masjid. I like it. I can just drop my kid off. And how many people do we have? Just They just drop their kids off. There's complete trust. They know exactly what they're going to hear. Right? So... When those people come in and as if uh, they, they don't understand that the management of a masjid, that is an Islamically legal position that has a lot of rights to keep order right, in the masjid. Sometimes they say, well, it's a valid Islamic opinion. It could be as valid as you want it to be, right? We're not promoting it. Simple as that. We're not promoting this because it's going to confuse what we're promoting, right? There could be two valid things, but they're like conflicting and they're causing confusion. So when, when governments used to have courts, they operate on one madhab. So you don't go to the Mughal Empire and say, hold on a second, judge me, oh judge, judge by the Madhiki madhab. No, we judge by one madhab here. Otherwise we cause confusion in the land, right? I say, hey judge, according to the Madhiki madhab, it's my property. Well, according to the Hanafi Madhab, it's not, right? And we're operated by the Hanafi Madhab because we have to have order here. It's not just uh, anything that has any validity, then you have a right to say it out loud in the message. Like the, the society, so everyone has an opinion, so it causes... It's so just complete chaos. Yeah, There's no it. unity, too. Yeah. There's no unity in, uh, amongst the people. And, and, and I'm telling you, it's, many people get surprised because they imagine house of Allah means... It's like public. I can do whatever I want here because it's the house of Allah. That's not the case at all. Um, if Kari, our imam, he, uh, one of the rulings is that there's no jama'ah outside of his jama'ah. Right? If the akama is called and he leads the prayer for let's say Asr and you came in like two minutes late with a group of five friends, you're praying individually. There's no second jama'ah. Because we've seen and, and the books of fiqh also reflect this. That actually leads to people feeling that they could do this all the time. Then you have like jamaz happen in the mosque all the time. And that person leads like 10 people in the prayer and he thinks he's something. 
And the people think he's an authority too. So it confuses everything. You're not allowed to have a jamaat. Halakha. We have dinners in the masjid all the time. A little halakha breaks out and you're talking deen? No, break it up right now. Oh, but I'm saying something good and true. Then say it somewhere else then, right? We're not saying you can't say it, but you here you can't say it here. Because you confuse the, 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 the authority, right? So people start taking you as an authority, coming up and walking that. So Kari's kicks people out. He's shut down halakas right in front of my eyes. I was like, what? He shut it down. He said, I have more experience than you. Okay? I know what's going on. He does not play around. He does not play around. The story, though, is when, as the Borderlands started out. That's I wasn't there for that. Point. Wait, what happened? But, so, so, have you viewed that? Yeah, I was there. It was the, the, one of the days that we were going to start uh, the Borda. Borda because yeah. you, we were told before the teachers come, start the Borda. Here or there? In the, in the mosque. In the masjid, yeah. So I think you had a meeting with Sheikh Harun in the yeah. back room. So we were just waiting and we started the burda. Yeah. And I guess the meeting went on for a while. And now we're like an hour and we're almost finished. Yeah. Ahmed on, wow. on the big mic. It's uh, on his own. Okay. Yeah, it's like, like, oh, he's in like, trouble. like few, a few guys there, right? Yeah, he's in trouble. And Khairi uh, Saad walks in from the back. Yeah. And literally Ahmed goes, he's like reciting and he it slowly like puts down the mic. And, yeah. and then everyone just goes pin drop silent. <laughs> <laughs> and I just looking there like bewildered like yeah. what's, what's what is happening, what's happening? Yeah. and then like he already knew what the deal yeah, was so, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's like very loud he, he knew his neck was gonna get cut right? yeah he just like you <laughs> know Ahmed done. just puts his head down <laughs> okay. just like shaking I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> so he comes up and uh, he just starts sort of, like making fun of Ahmed like oh, oh you think you're a and then somehow after that, he, he was like, we need Borda every night. And then if he didn't know Ahmed, oh, it he would have been, been out. Yeah, it would have been out. But this is how it was established. This yeah, was that's established. how it was established. Yeah. And that only happened because Kari knows you guys and he likes you, right? Yeah. But if he was strangers came and did this, oh, he would have gone ballistic. Nasser is even worse. He will be physically dragged out of the building, <laughs> right? <laughs> Unbelievable. But that's why there's order in the masjid, right? And people benefit from this order. They walk in. There's a, there's a feeling of a peaceful lake, right? Yeah. Whereas in other in communities where they're like giving out leadership positions and authority as if it's generosity. It's not generosity. You're just creating caste. There's now, he's the authority in that field. He's there. They're not connected. There are multiple authorities now. In the community, and it that's also a builds trust within the people, like the the core people there. When yeah. you see them, it's like, okay, I can go to this person for this and this person for that. Yeah. It's not like you're like trying to pick who, like, exactly. who I can go to. Yeah, there's there's no factions. Yeah, no factions. When reciting Surah Al-Baqarah in the house for calamities, should it repeated or just once, as much as you like, but once is sufficient. But as much as you like. What surah should we recite in silent prayers like Dhuhr and Asr behind the Imam? For Dhuhr, long surahs. For Asr, mid-range surahs. Mid-range surahs meaning between Abasa and Duha. Right? Long surahs being really any surah you want, but for Dhuhr and Asr, you won't really be able to recite something longer than Hujurat, for example. So from Hujurat to Abasa. Dino says, Istigatha. Istigatha is mashru'a without a doubt through the angels. 
and by the phrase Ya Ibadallah. Why? Because the Prophet has a hadith on this. It's narrated by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. If you are lost in the desert, shout out Ya Ibadallah A'inuni. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has angels in every place. Uh, in another narration, the Prophet said, if your animal goes away from you, far away from you, then call out, Ya ibadallah ihbisu. O servants of Allah, stop it. Imam al Nawawi, he said he saw this being practiced by his shiuch in front of him, and their animal stopped going away. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal's son narrates that his father was on the way to Hajj, got lost. And so he began to say, Ya ibadallah, dulluni ala tariq. Ya ibadallah, dulluni ala tariq. Which means, oh ibadallah, show me the way. Until he found the way. Okay, so Allah's angels are there helping, and Allah is telling us, the Prophet is telling us, call on them for help. In the same way that you would ask a person for help. Is it, if I see a human being there, now why did the Prophet say this? If I see a human being, if I'm, me and my baby are lost, right? Or a caravan of people are lost. I'm lost. And I see a local man. And I refuse to ask him for help. And my whole people, they die. Am I guilty or an innocent? Guilty. I'm guilty. Why? I had the ability. Allah gave me the, the means to seek help. So I'm commanded to seek help. What the Prophet is saying is believe in the unseen. The human being is not the only one there to help you. There are angels there to help you, right? So ask them. And it becomes something that the Prophet tells us to do. Ya ibadallah, dulluni ala tariq. Ya ibadallah, ihbisu. So we say about this that uh, what Imam Ahmad said, he did it. And what Imam al Nawi said, he did it. And he saw his teachers doing it, then he did it himself too. And he said it worked. Okay, of course it's going to work as well. Ya ibadallah. Ya ibadallah. That is an istighatha, is seeking help from the unseen in the same way that you would seek help from a seen person. No different. Except the angels will never misguide you. A human being could try to help you but fail. Angel, if the angel helps you, you're going to succeed. Which means trap or stop my animal from going astray. But if you notice how Imam Ahmad, he just, he, he said what he needed. Show me the way. Right? Until he found the way. As I gave it an example, if there was a human being in front of you and you're lost, would you not be bound? You're lost in the desert is a death sentence, right? Absolutely. You would be bound, obligated to ask this person for help. Otherwise, your, your dependents would be dead. Are these one of the angels that are the 12 appointed angels? No, these are not the 12 appointed angels around you. These are different angels working. Yeah, doing whatever job that Allah has commanded them to do. So they're there, they're all over the world, and the Prophet says that when you are in need, now he gave us two examples. One, being lost in the desert, that's death. Number two, losing your animal, not death. Right? It's not death, but you could still ask, right? You still use the angels that Allah has all over the earth. Is that not istirat? That's istirat. Uh, if you lose yeah. something, uh, what can you say aside from uh, in any Surah al-Duha. Surah al-Duha. Surah al-Duha. Surah al-Duha. 
It's the guy in Falcon Up. I'm gonna do that. How should an imam prevent Muslim business owners from selling alcohol in their restaurants? His prevention is with his speech. His prohibition uh, on the mimbar and in different situations when he gives the khutbah, etc. Okay? All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have to go to the, let's go to the Hizb now. Um, and recite that and recite a dua for the people of Al-Bakistan. All right, we're going to recite what we usually recite, which is Hizb al-Nasr. Okay. Aisha. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Did you say we call upon angels? This is the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. Rewind a little bit on YouTube so you can hear exactly what I said. It is the hadith of the Prophet, peace be upon him. That said. NBF 35 was on. NBF 35. Okay, good. NBF 35 was all about this. Nothing but facts, episode 35. That the Prophet ﷺ said, if you are lost in a desert, say, Ya ibad Allah, a'inuni. And if your answer, your, your animal is lost, say, Ya ibadallah So, general needs that people have one for life, one not for life. So, that is no different than calling upon a living person, right? In ruling. So, that's uh, what I said, Aisha. Yeah. Would it be wrong to call upon them in any other circumstances? I think it's in the need. Any circumstance of certain need, yeah. Yeah, need. Like if a car breaks down, you're out of gas. Needs like that. Someone says, Well, why don't you just call upon Allah? Well, Allah is giving you means. Your prophet is telling you. You have an angel there to help you. If I'm lost, right? And I'm in the middle of Arizona on the highway and my car is done. And a, and a car is coming by. You don't say, oh, hey, you stopped the car. And then someone says to you, why did you stop the car? Why don't you go call on Allah? This is my obedience to Allah. Because Allah gave me a means. That is my calling. My obedience to Allah Ta'ala is using the means He gave me. That's, it shows your belief. Huh? It, it, shows, it shows belief too. And, I'll, and think about there's something else. When you're out in the desert and the idea that there's angels all around you, it gives you some comfort, right? Because nonetheless, we're human beings. We need, we feel comfort when there's other living creatures around us, right? That's why I actually, like crickets, birds, squirrels, it actually gives a little bit of comfort because you feel like there's actually living things all over. Imagine you're just, it was completely silent. It's not something that's in the fitr of the human being. Um, and these hadiths that I mentioned, there's no, they're not hidden. They're all over the books and... Uh, there are so many narrations that they strengthen one another to the point that Imam Ahmad and Imam Nawawi both acted upon them. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Inna fatahna laka fatham mubina liyaghfira laka Allahu ma taqaddam min dhambika wa ma taakhar wa yutim na'matahu alayka wa yahdiyaka siratam mustaqima 
وينصرك الله نصرا عزيزا وكان عند الله وجيها وجيها في الدنيا والآخرة ومن المقربين وجهت وجهي للذي فطر السماوات والأرض بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نصر من الله وفتح قريب وبشر المؤمنين يا أيها الذين آمنوا كونوا أنصار الله كما قال عيسى بن مريم للحواريين من أنصاري إلى الله قال الحواريون نحن أنصار الله الله لا إله إلا هو الحي القيوم لا تأخذه سنة ولا نوم لهما في السماوات وما في الأرض من ذا الذي يشفع عنده إلا بإذنه يعلم ما بين أيديهم وما خلفهم ولا يحيطون بشيء من علمه إلا بما شاء وسع كرسيه السماوات والأرض ولا يؤده حفظهما وهو العلي العظيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم لو أنزلنا هذا القرآن على جبل لرأيته خاشعا متصدعا من خشية الله وتلك الأمثال نضربها للناس لعلهم يتفكرون هو الله الذي لا إله إلا هو عالم الغيب والشهادة هو الرحمن الرحيم هو الله الذي لا إله إلا هو الملك القدوس السلام المؤمن المهيمن العزيز الجبار المتكبر سبحان الله عما يشركون هو الله الخالق البارئ المصور له الأسماء الحسنى يسبح له ما في السماوات والأرض وهو العزيز الحكيم وإذ نفسي بالله تعالى من كل ما يسمع بأذنين ويبصر بعينين ويمشي برجلين ويبطش بيدين وتكلم بشفتين حصنت نفسي بالله الخالق الأكبر من شر ما أخاف وأحذر من الجن والإنس وأن يحضرون عز جاره وجل ثناؤه وتقدست أسماؤه ولا إله غيره اللهم إني أجعلك في نحور آدائي وأعوذ بك من شرورهم وتحيلهم ومكرهم ومكائدهم أطفئ نار من أراد بها دعوة من الجن والإنس يا حافظ يا حفيظ يا كافي يا محيط سبحانك يا رب ما أعظم شأنك وأعز سلطانك تحسنت بالله وبأسماء الله وبآيات الله وملائكة الله وأنبياء الله ورسل الله والصالحين من عباد الله حصنت نفسي بلا إله إلا الله محمد رسول الله صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم اللهم أحرسني بعدك التي لا تنام واكنفني بكنفك الذي لا يرام وارحمني بقدرتك علي فلا أهلك وأنت ثقتي ورجائي يا غياث المستغيثين يا غياث المستغيثين يا غياث المستغيثين يا درك الهالكين يا درك الهالكين يا درك الهالكين اكفني شر كل طارق يطرق بليل أو نهار إلا طارق يطرق بخير إنك على كل شيء قدير بسم الله أرقي نفسي من كل ما يؤذي ومن كل حاسد الله شفائي بسم الله رقيت اللهم رب الناس أذهب الباس اشفي أنت الشافي وعافي أنت المعافي لا شفاء إلا شفاءك شفاء لا يغادر السقم ولا ألم يا كافي يا وافي يا حميد يا مجيد ارفع عني كل تعب شديد واكفني من الحد والحديد والمراض الشديد والجيش العديد واجعل لي نورا من نورك وعزا من عزك ونصرا من نصرك وبهاء من بهائك وعطاء من عطائك وحراسة من حراستك وتأييد من تأييدك يا ذا الجلال والإكرام والمواهب العظام أسألك أن تكفيني من شر كل ذي شر إنك أنت الله الخالق الأكبر وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه
والحمد لله رب العالمين ظاهرا وباطنا وعلى كل حال يا أرحم الراحمين إن شاء الله أتك a few minutes for silent dua because this is uh, a time of ijaba answering of prayers the day of Wednesday between Dhuhr and Asr as narrated by Jabir ibn Abdullah that this was a time that the Prophet was answered therefore he took it as a time in which dua is answered Bismillah صلى الله وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين